Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Well, what's up, Collective? Uh, It is cool to be able to see you guys. It's cool to be able to come out here again. If you weren't here in July when I had the opportunity to come out and speak, um, you can go back and listen to it if you want. But either way, it was cool to be able to just hang out out here and meet you guys. It's also really cool for me to see um, that this is a church that not just like has tattoos, but does tattoos. Uh, Chris and Sarah from Concrete Jungle, who came out and did tattoos here in the lobby, are people that I've literally been trying to pastor for the past 10 years. And I've had a relationship with them. I've gotten to know them. I've invested in them. And it was cool for me to just hear, uh, my wife came running in the room and she goes like, show me her Instagram. Like Chris and Sarah are going to collective. What in the world? And um, from Michael to just to show you, like, dude, they still call you their pastor. And I'm like, I haven't seen them in two years, but I love those people. And I'm just always good with more ink, right? So uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm the community director at Mosaic over in Elkridge, closer to the city. But um, uh, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to preach uh, here today. So last summer, my wife decided uh, that she wanted to run and train for her first triathlon. And we've done races in the past, and they've all been runs. Like, we just increased the distance over time. We did a 5K, and then a, uh, I don't know, and then a 5-miler, and then a 10K, and eventually worked our way up to a half marathon. And we both ran it, but we both hated it, and decided we're never going to run a distance that long. And it really just shouldn't be ran by anybody that's human. So um, either way, she came to me and she goes, hey, how do you feel about training for a triathlon? And I said, that sounds like death. I don't want to do it. I don't like cardio. I don't like swimming or running or biking. So I really don't want to do it. Um, but she was like, all right, cool. I'm going to do it. I'd like you to do it with me. And for, for clarity, this isn't like an Ironman or a half Ironman. This is a sprint triathlon, the shortest of all triathlons. It is uh, like a half mile swim, 14 miles on a bike, and uh, a little over three miles on a run. I talked to a couple of guys at my work who had completed the Ironman and half Ironman and just started asking them. And one of the guys goes, hey, dude, you don't even have to train for a sprint triathlon. Like, you'd just be able to go out and endure it. You could just go do it. You're fine now as you are. And I was like, all right, cool. I guess that sounds good for me. I borrowed his bike, got a membership at the Y. We started training. We're swimming, biking. Um, we're running. And our training sessions just keep getting longer and longer and longer. And they begin to take up more and more of our evening, especially when we're both training because we can't do it simultaneously with the kids. And so I had to move my training sessions to the morning. And so one morning I decided I'm going to ride my bike to work. It's about 20 miles from my house. It was a little bit longer than what the training had called for. But my philosophy was if I can crush this ride, I can crush this race. All right. And as I'm doing that, or as I'm preparing for that, I'm also listening to a book in my headphones by Jocko Wilnick called Extreme Ownership. And if you're not familiar with Jocko Wilnick, he is a guy that like gets a ton of stuff done and embraces the pain of life and no excuse is ever good enough for him. And he constantly lives in a state of like, I'm just going to accomplish what I need to. He literally made a video called Good that you could look up on YouTube. It's about two and a half minutes of him just um, addressing every problem that could be in life. And his whole response is good. Here's a preview of it. Did something go wrong? Good. It exposes your weakness and shows you where to improve. Did something get delayed? Good. You just have more time to prepare. Did something go different than what you expected? Good. You learn to be diverse in your thinking. And the video is two and a half minutes of that, right? 
In any case, I put it on in my headphones. I start my ride around 6 a.m. to head towards church. I barely get off my road, and one of my tires is looking a little bit low. And I'm like, good. Just gives me more time to ride back. Good. I'm going to go over 20 miles today. Good. I get to put some air in it, and I get to uh, be better set up for the rest of my ride. This is like, this is awesome. So I put some air in my tire. I get back out on the road. And about two miles from my house, all of a sudden, I hear a pop. And my back tire starts to feel funny. And I'm like, this isn't good, but I still got Jocko on in my headphones. So I'm like, good. Just more time to train. Good. I'm going to push my bike to work. Good. I get to practice getting a screw out of the tire and changing it. Good. I get to be more prepared for my race. This is all good. And Kim picks me up and uh, <laughs> drives me to work. There's no way I was pushing that bike. The philosophy was good. The action was stupid. Uh, I got to work early, but here's what I did. I got to work early. I got my stuff done. I got home. I did fix the bike. I kept training. Race day finally got there. Kim and I felt pretty prepared. She set her goal for two hours and five minutes. I set mine for 2.15, and the race begins. I'm watching her in the pool. She's swimming great, and then it's my turn to get in, and on lap one, I'm like, I feel good, and then I start to quickly realize that like there's a big difference between swimming in a pool with a bunch of senior adult walkers at the Y and swimming in a pool with a bunch of competitive swimmers. The wake is completely different, so how much I need to turn my head to clear like the wake or the waves, um, I'm not turning it enough. So I'm just sucking in water. I wind up breaststroking eight of the 12 laps. The person who's at the wall, like trying to encourage you, is like, you're doing good, I think. And uh, I get, finally finish that up. I get out of the pool. I walk down to the bike. And for the first mile of riding the bike, I feel like I'm just trying to like clear the water and the air that I've been swallowing for the past 35 minutes. And in the middle of that, Two bikers are coming the opposite way, moving pretty quickly, and I swear to you, one of them screamed out, wrong way, wrong way, and I immediately get in my head, and I'm like, how could I be going the wrong way? It's, I followed the arrows, but it said to go counterclockwise, and I'm definitely going clockwise, and am I going the right direction, or am I going the wrong direction? I completely contemplated that for the next, like, I don't know, five minutes while I was riding, I ultimately decided to turn around. I go about a half mile back on the course before seeing someone I knew was in the race because he was the guy who sang the national anthem before we got started. He gave me a weird look as he went past me in the original direction I was going. I turned back around. At that point, I've completely abandoned Jocko. Like, that, screw that guy. Um, the idea of good is no longer there. I fully embrace negative self-talk. I'm picking on myself for everything. I'm unqualified. I'm stupid. I'm fat. I'm out of shape. I didn't train enough. I was replaying every conversation I'd had with anybody in the past month and turning it into a negative one. The buddy of mine who did the Ironman saw me ride to work a couple weeks ago, and he goes, hey, man, your seat height looks a little bit low. You might not be getting the full power of your pedal. That conversation quickly became, you're not even getting full power. How could you forget to change it? Did you even and try to prepare. I'm literally riding up a hill for the second time, slower than I could be, and I've wasted time doing it because my seat height is off. Around the five mile mark, I pass a boat in some guy's yard for sale, and I thought, I'd rather stop and look at this sketchy boat than continue with this race. <laughs> my wife can finish her race, realize I quit, drive the car, find me five miles down the road, I'll throw the bike in the car, hand it back to my stupid friend at work, and, and then I'm just going to go home. I didn't stop, I eventually finished, and I say eventually because it took me a long time. Shortly after crossing the finish line, Kim and I took a picture, which I'm not going to show because I wasn't wearing a shirt. Nobody needs that image. Uh, we celebrate the moment, and we start to head home. Now, for most of the afternoon, Kim keeps checking the race website to see if she beat her goal, right, with the official, web, the official times. The official time comes out. She did it in one hour, 54 minutes, and seven seconds. Right. You can give it up for her. Yeah. She's not here this morning. She's staffing liminal, so she doesn't know that. I'll tell her people clapped. Either way, she beat her goal by over 10 minutes. It was awesome. 
Uh, I completed my race two hours, 23 minutes, and 18 seconds, and I beat a total of three women. And I'm not picking on women. I was also beat by 10 people over 60, including a 75-year-old who beat me by 14 minutes. I missed my own goal by eight minutes, seven of which I was making circles in the middle of the bike track. Uh, and I beat one, one of the three women that I beat waited in the transition area between the swim and the bike for 55 minutes because, quote, I wanted to bike with my friends. Those are the people that I beat. I need you to understand, I absolutely hated every single part of that race. I was ready to give up. I determined I'd never do a triathlon again. And then when I looked at that score sheet, I was like, I guess I have to do another one just to redeem myself. A buddy of mine texted, I sent him that story, a buddy of mine texted me, he goes, dude, hilarious, last place male. And I was like, thanks for the encouragement. Uh, but here's why I tell you this story. For two minutes and 20, for two hours, 23 minutes and 18 seconds, I experienced suffering that I signed up for. Nobody made me do it. I voluntarily signed myself up to suffer for over two hours. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I do that all the time in my life. It's choosing to watch another episode of The Office at 1.30 in the morning knowing I have an early work meeting the next day. It's continuing to scroll on social media even though we all know that when we get on social media we find ourselves angrier and more frustrated and less satisfied, but we sign ourselves up to suffer by just scrolling in the evening. It's the decision to text the ex to just see how they're doing. And whether they respond or they don't, you know that you're just going to lead to regret. And if we're honest, we know there's plenty of times where we signed ourselves up to suffer. And then there's also times where we didn't sign up to suffer. Like there's people in this room who were abused and you never signed up for that. People who, found themselves people who find themselves suffering in a loveless marriage where your spouse just seems complacent and content to move forward and pretend that everything's okay. You never signed up for that. There's... There's others that didn't sign up for the diagnosis or the chronic pain or the mental anguish of what somebody did or what somebody said or what somebody told you you were, but every single day you battle the mental images of what people put in your mind. And then there's a whole other group of people who aren't really suffering for what they did or what somebody else did. It's simply about your decision to follow Jesus. Like there's people in here who have lost friends because they stopped partying after they started following Jesus. And your partying friends say, hey, we don't really want anything to do with you anymore if you're not going to do what we do. It's the buddy of mine who, the same day he decided to get in the baptism tub and give his life to Christ was the, also the same day that his girlfriend said, I don't want to be in a relationship with a man who wants to set those kind of boundaries. And he goes, I'm more lonely than I've ever been since following Jesus. It's some of you in here who are suffering because you know your kids don't know Jesus, and daily you find yourself begging God to bring them back and redeem them, but every single conversation you have with them just seems to prove more and more that they have no interest in God and no interest in coming back to him. Aren't you glad you came to Collective this morning for this kind of encouragement? And I know it's kind of like frustrating and it just kind of stirs up some things, but the reality is like, have you ever wondered, like I have, isn't this idea of following Jesus supposed to be easier? Isn't life with Christ supposed to end the suffering? Why am I going through so much pain if I'm doing what he says? And the reality is following Jesus does lead us to life, but it also calls us to sacrifice. We have to sacrifice at times what we love most for what matters most. Jesus calls us to pick up, his pick up our cross and suffer with him at times so we can redeem the world that he died to save. And so this morning, my goal isn't to resolve the problem of suffering in our world. That's like the effect of sin and brokenness. I can't fix that. Instead, I want to give us a new lens, a new way of looking at our suffering and our challenges to help them become things that empower us instead of derail us a way that our struggle can make us stronger, a way that the pain that we experience becomes a platform for how we care for others. I want us to be able to look at our past, our present, and our future and write something like what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, he says, we're pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, 
but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. We get knocked down. Anybody else stir up Chumbawamba when you hear I get knocked down? First service didn't get it. Pray for him, all right? But we get knocked down, but we don't get destroyed. Like, when you read that, does anybody else want faith like that? Like, Paul is so spiritually grounded in his relationship with Christ that things that should disrupt him to his core don't even really seem to phase him. How nice would it be to, like, face challenges in life and then not give up? To be confused, even confused by God or with God, and know that, like, we're not in despair. To feel like at moments in life we're being hunted down and chased and, and like, sought after in a negative way, but to know that God has never left us. To, to be aware that like life will kick us, life will knock us down, but we could know deep in our bones that we are never going to be destroyed. Like I'm convinced we all want to be people who are mentally tough and display that kind of fortitude. So my question for you this morning is when you struggle, when you go through suffering, how do you respond? Are you a person who tends to be tough and enduring, or are you more frail and unsteady? How do you talk to yourselves in moments of heartache and pain and struggle? Are you kind to yourself or are you more ruthless and much more harsh? And is it even possible, like is it even possible to be tough enough to endure deep pain and also kind enough to like be generous to people? Or does toughness have to be associated with ruthlessness? Can we be kind to ourselves without losing our strength and our motivation? See, for most of my life, I've operated like a person who has to choose between the two. Like the graph I, I draw looks something like this, where toughness is on one side and kindness is on the other. And I just do my best to kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Of like, I don't want to be too tough where I lose kindness, and I don't want to be too kind where I just get run over. And so I try and find myself somewhere in the middle. And then there's some days in life where like the world upsets me and the world frustrates me or just traffic is bad because I live near Baltimore. And I find myself over here being an a-hole. Kindness isn't on my radar, but I got to stand up for myself. And then on the opposite side, there's days where I'm like, man, I just want to restore the relationship. I just want something to work out. I just want something to be different. And I kind of find myself over here and it's like, I lack some toughness. I lack some discipline. I lack uh, some boundaries, but, but I'm just trying to, to show some grace. And I try and just kind of live this out on a regular basis. But then when I like look at the example of Paul, it seems that Paul had both. Like there's an example with Paul where he, he does ministry with this guy named John Mark. And they come to such a disagreement in the way that they do ministry that Paul literally goes, you go that way and I'll go this way. And they split ways. But then later we see Paul write a letter and he goes, hey, send John Mark to me because that man is, quote, profitable for the ministry. Like, how is it that Paul displays toughness and like fortitude and holding the line and sticking to truth, but also kindness and grace and restoration? And then you look at Jesus and it says that Jesus was the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace. Like, toughness is all about truth. It's about rigidity. It's about black and white. There is no gray. And then grace is, there is only gray. And it's this idea of like, yet truth is good. But it says that Jesus was full of both. So somehow he existed on this end of the spectrum and this end of the spectrum simultaneously. How? How does he do that? Well, part of it is I think we've drawn the line wrong. And I know I drew the line, but this is how I set it up in my own mind. I think it's better drawn like this. And it's actually two intersecting lines. One is about how we deal with things mentally. 
And the other one's how we deal with things emotionally. Right? So from a mental space, it's we can be mentally tough or like mentally frail. And emotionally, we can be kind to ourselves, kind to others, grace-filled, or we can be ruthless and mean. And so my question is, is if this is our graph this morning, where do you show up? Like, where are you at this morning? Where are you at on Tuesday when your boss gives you a project you weren't expecting and says it needs to be done by Thursday? Where are you at when your spouse asks something of you that you weren't expecting? Where are you when your kids aren't listening? Where do you show up? I heard a quote this week that um, I never realized how selfish I was until I got married, and I never realized how angry I was until I had kids. And whoever came up with that quote, I hate them. All right? I don't need that kind of exposure in my life. Uh, in any case, uh, where, where do you show up? Right? I, think, I think Paul... When we see him, like in, in how he deals with John Mark, there's like there is a toughness and a kindness. And so Paul's here. Right now, you go, well, where's Jesus? Jesus is up here. Let's not play. He's the fullness of grace and truth. He models everything. He's perfect. He doesn't move. But for the rest of us, this, this chart is actually probably dynamic. Like wherever you show up, you're probably moving in and throughout there as you're influenced by the different things that are going on in life. As you suffer, as you struggle, as you experience joy, all of that's going to kind of move you around a little bit. But where do you show up? See, for me, I show up here a lot. Less mentally tough than I want to be and more kind than I probably should be at times. But either way, I, I show up here. I, if, if you're like me and you show up here, you, you may be a person who starts a lot of things you don't finish. You may be a person who goes, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I want to do something. Uh, but we don't actually do it. You may be great at giving grace, but probably bad at setting boundaries at times. You probably missed some deadlines just because that takes mental fortitude to sit down and do what you don't feel like doing in the moment. There's times in my life where I operate down here where I'm more frail uh, mentally and more ruthless emotionally. If this is you, you tend to be negative on yourself. There's probably some things in life that you know you should have done but you didn't do and now you don't step into anything new that challenges you because you're probably not going to do it and you're probably not even worth it. When I live in this space, it leads me to just to passivity, um, depression, and some really dark places. And then there's this space where we're mentally tough, we can accomplish things, but we're also ruthless to ourselves emotionally. If you need an example of this, I'd put like Goggins here. Like if you guys don't know who David Goggins is, he's like a fitness guru, guy who gets a ton of stuff done. He does accomplish a lot. Like he crushes it, but he screams at himself the whole time to do it. Um, and if this is you, you probably get a lot done, but you never really feel satisfied with it all because your activity isn't able to overcome the shame and the self-definition you have. And operating here produces great results externally, but tends to destroy us internally. And as Goggins like lives that out and in some ways models what he doesn't even know he's modeling, um, I just try and learn from that. He literally records videos of himself running a marathon at 3 a.m., screaming about, I gotta be out here, so I'm not a wuss. That's not the word he uses, but it's the one that's appropriate for in here. Either way, he, he's kind of like down here. Extremely tough mentally, extremely ruthless emotionally. There is no excuse. His motto would be, nobody cares, work harder. Like that is modeled when we are tough and we are ruthless. And then there's up here. There's, there's a way to occupy space up here where we are kind emotionally and tough relationally. A way that we can hold ourselves to standards 
and like high standards, but understand that we can never achieve perfection. We can fight for justice, like publicly and privately, but we can also choose grace personally. It's possible to be disciplined, but not beat yourself up to do it. You don't have to be motivated by shame. And so my question for you this morning is, where do you show up? Most of the time, where do you show up? Are you satisfied with it? Do you like where you find yourself? If your answer is no, and you'd like to grow, I want to encourage you, growth is possible. And if you need an example of that, I'd give you the example of the Apostle Paul. Paul, earlier in his life, went by the name Saul, but he operated down here, like all the time. He is here, just down in this space, right? And he, he is unbelievable, unbelievably religious. He says... I was the religious of the religious, the Pharisee of Pharisees. I have followed every law, I have memorized them, and I expect you to do the same. I have no grace and no compromise for people who don't want to follow God. And then when Christians come on the scene and they begin following Jesus and they begin preaching something different than the Jewish faith he came up with, he ruthlessly hunted them down and murdered them. He martyred more people than anybody in his generation because he was unbelievably ruthless and unbelievably tough mentally. And you go, well, how in the world did he change? Jesus. He met a resurrected guy who he had known was crucified, who then offered him grace if he was willing to repent. And he literally changes his name and his mission and begins to live life pursuing what Jesus calls him to. And he begins to experience a life that is so much more fulfilling. And he moves from being a, a martyr of Christians to the, to the most successful church planner that we know. He's successful in both, but now he experiences it with grace. And let me just pause here for a second. If you're trying to live life like up here without submitting to Christ, you can do it for periods of time, but you're going to struggle to do it in a sustained way. Like the only way, in my opinion, the only way to live in a sustained pattern in that top right quadrant is through the power of Christ. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, check the baptism box on your connection card, and somebody from the team is going to reach out to you this week and have a conversation and help you understand what that means. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're called and we're expected to live up here. Not perfect, but growing. And regardless of who you are, if you want to grow in this, I want to give you just three quick steps that we see throughout the Bible on how to grow. The first one is this, assess where you are. For some of us, it means just plotting it out. You need to draw that graph in your own journal and plot it out. For others of us, it may mean we need to ask our spouse or our kids how we show up. How do we show up when we're happy? How do we show up when we're frustrated? How do we show up when they're listening and when they're not? If you're single, maybe you need to ask a trusted friend how you show up and talk to yourself in the trying moments of life. But we have to know where we are. One verse that comes to mind on this topic is Romans 12, 3, where the Roman people are like debating about who's better and who's worse, and they're kind of measuring themselves against one another. And Paul writes this to him. He says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given you. See, Paul's point is that growth requires truth. You cannot grow from where you are if you don't know where you are or you won't admit where you are. And then once you've identified where you are, step two is this. Pick one way to grow. Regardless of where you show up, the reality is we all have room for growth. I know there's probably a million different things you could start doing and uh, to start growing in different areas. Pick one of them. You're not going to change every single pattern in your life this week. I know that because I've tried that. 
It does not work. So pick one thing to address and start doing it. And you might have an idea already, but here's a couple. If you want to grow in mental toughness, consider starting your day with a cold shower uh, to set a precedent that your decision is stronger than your preference. Give yourself a checklist when you start your day and then don't quit your day until you finish it. Start a Bible reading plan and be determined to not miss a day. Now, if you're a person who needs to grow in kindness, that's the area you want to grow in, consider starting your day with gratitude. Journal three things that bring a smile to your face when you think about them before you start your day because tenderness and connection with God are actually better than achievement in the morning. Start your daily prayers with confession as a reminder of how much you are in need of grace before you go out and try and actually give grace. Try this one. Do something weekly where you cannot win. And I don't mean where you cannot fight to win. I mean where you cannot win. Paint a picture that you're never going to hang up. Write a story that nobody's going to read. Play a video game that there's no achievement to accomplish, but just because you enjoy doing it. Like, allow yourself to be kind to yourself and do something you enjoy. Whatever area you need to address, my challenge for you is just pick one practical step you can start doing that will help you grow in that area. And then that leads to step three. Execute the plan. This isn't confusing, this isn't groundbreaking, but whatever practical step you need to take, it doesn't actually help you until you start taking it. So from now till the end of the year, I wanna challenge you just to commit to taking your step daily and put it on your calendar. Make it a priority. And then if you miss a day, don't scream at yourself and quit. That's operating down in this space. I've been there plenty, it doesn't really work. Extend grace, because you're a man or a woman who is trying to figure things out and trying to figure out how to experience growth and then start back up again. Quick story on that, I have a buddy who um, had hundreds of days sober from pornography. And out of nowhere recently, he looked at it three days in a row. And he spent some time reflecting on it. He set an appointment with his counselor and we sat down with his counselor, he kind of told him the story and his counselor goes, so what happened? Like not so much on day one, but what happened on day two and three? Why'd you mess up again? And he goes, well, after day one, I just told myself, I've wasted a hundred and some days being sober. I can't do it anymore. And so day two and three weren't about the fact of getting back on the horse. It was the fact of like shame is the loudest voice in my mind and it doesn't matter what I do anymore. We don't have to live life like that because neither Paul nor God calls us to persevere as a way of earning God's respect because we don't matter. But because of Jesus, they teach us that we no longer have to strive to earn something from God. Instead, we strive and we strain because God's already given us something and we get to do it. See, check out what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. This is what we started with, but I'm gonna read a little bit more of it. He says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. I love that Paul calls himself fragile. He is a man who is spiritually grounded, mentally tough, emotionally kind, and recognizes that his body is fragile and gonna die one day. And that's what we're all trying to figure out. How do we live out? Because we're fragile clay jars, but we contain this great treasure. And it makes it clear that our power is from God, not from ourselves. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, not driven to despair. We're hunted down, never abandoned to God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. And then he writes this, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. The message of Goggins is nobody cares, work harder. The message from Paul and from Jesus is God sees you, 
so you can keep going. Paul is teaching us what scripture has taught him, which is we can never give up because God is with us. And I know what some of you might be thinking. Like, if God is with me, why do I feel so alone? If God is able to give me strength, why do I feel so fragile? If he's here, where? And I know those questions because I've asked those questions myself. See, in 2009, the late 2009, uh, I was in ministry full-time as a youth pastor. I was doing my best to love God, love the church, and love my wife well. Things weren't perfect, but they were about to get a whole lot worse. The arguments in my marriage, my lack of self-discipline, and uh, our broken communication had finally been too much. And my wife said she needed some space. She went to visit a friend of ours on a weekend just to get away. The next weekend, she went back, and the next weekend, they wound up making out. A few months later in February, she moved out, and for the first time in my life, I spent a birthday alone with nobody even knowing that my wife was gone because I was too ashamed to tell anybody. Uh, a pint of Red Bull, and, a pint of Red Bull, that'd be disgusting. Four Red Bulls and a pint of Jaeger later, uh, I passed out in the shower amidst my own honey bunches of oats that I'd had for dinner. I woke up the next morning, I took myself to work to go back to ministry and do the Lord's work. I did my best to care, I did my best to perform well, I did my best to do everything while hiding and writhing in emotional pain. Next year the divorce is finalized and I was officially alone, stuck in a basement with renters renting the top two levels of my house. For the next three years I rode around without a seatbelt on, praying, praying that God would let somebody run a red light and take me out because I didn't want the pain anymore but I didn't want the shame of suicide on my family. And you know what God did? Nothing. I didn't hear anything. It wasn't that he answered my prayer, it's that he never said anything. And then in October of 2014, I had the chance to go to Israel and walk the steps of Jesus with a group of pastors I respected. We were staying on top of Mount Arbel where Jesus had uh, gone after feeding the 5,000. And some guy walks up to me and he goes, hey, that right there is the center of the Sea of Galilee. And I went, cool. What am I supposed to do with that? Like, there's more to your story. Just tell me the rest of the story. And he goes, well, the, the Sea of Galilee is kind of shaped like a, a diamond, like a little bit offset. And it's 12 miles this way, and it's six miles this way. And then we know from Scripture that the disciples were about three miles offshore. And so the only place they really could have been was kind of right in the center of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes, that's, that's right there. It's just, it's just cool to know that Jesus never lost sight of them, even though they couldn't see him because the storm was too much. And I just started weeping, which I don't think he was expecting. <laughs> but his comment, that I don't know if it was the spirit leading him or his breakfast leading him, his comment became an answer to a four-year-old prayer where I felt like God had just abandoned me. It exposed a bad assumption I'd made when I didn't hear anything or see my situation team. It made such an impact on me, I literally tattooed it on my arm. I have a tattoo right here of Mount Arbel and the Sea of Galilee as a reminder that God sees us in our pain. And here's the thing, right? That's a cool story, but I'm not going to be here next week. I'm going back to Mosaic, and if you're anything like me, hearing a cool story is motivating until more suffering happens. And if you struggle this week, you need to be reminded next week that things are good, not just this week that things are good. And the reality is, I might not be here, but other people are. And the writer of Hebrews says we need those other people, and we need to be reminded of their stories. 
In Hebrews 11, the author lists out like all these heroes of the faith. And he says, these are the people who model what it is to follow God and submit to Jesus. And then he writes this to start off Hebrews 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are running a race, the race he just described, and there is a huge crowd of witnesses. Maybe you're in a giant coliseum, and you are running the race of your life. There are people cheering you on, men and women who have lived out the faith, fought the good fight, and now stand in your corner. And I want you to imagine getting tired and being worn out and ready to give up because the race is going differently than you expected when all of a sudden Jeff and Kelly Aiken from Collective show up and they're running beside you. They listen to your frustration about the plan that you had and how this race called life is different than what you expected. And then they could empathize with you. They could share their own story. They could share their own wisdom. But Kelly would ultimately end the conversation with the same challenge from Scripture that she holds on to and that she gives her boys and that's to be strong and courageous because the Lord your God is with you. They would teach you from God's word that, that you are not running this race alone. God is with you. And then they'd return to the sideline and they'd keep cheering you on. And you'd go further and you'd push on but you'd get frustrated because there were people who said they'd run this race with you. And they're not here anymore. And there's people who are supposed to be beside you. People who are supposed to be in your corner and on your team. And they, they've just abandoned their post. And you'd feel like quitting because you feel like you're doing it all alone. And Becky from Collective Kids would show up. And she'd run beside you. And she'd tell her story of losing people that she loved and then watching other people cope in the worst of ways. And she could empathize with your pain of being abandoned, but she'd remind you of Deuteronomy 31.6 and the words of Moses where he says, the Lord will go with you personally. He will go ahead of you and he will neither fail you nor abandon you. And it would be a pick-me-up. And for a while, you could lean on the faith of Becky to keep going. And then you'd keep running. And if you've ever run a long race, there's a point where the pain just starts to set in. Your feet have gone numb. Something's probably tingling. The shin splints are really flaring up. And you would just begin to feel that pain. And maybe your pace slows down. Maybe at this point you just want to walk. And that's when Josh would show up. And he'd encourage you with the weirdest encouragement you could come up with. He'd go, you need to embrace the pain. I want you to feel it. And he'd tell you how he avoided any negative feelings for so much of his life and everything that it cost him. And he would challenge you to hold on to the truth in James 1. He'd say, listen, like when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And you'd go, how is this joyful? And he'd go, oh, because the testing of this produces uh, endurance. And when endurance has a chance to grow, it's fully developed. You'll be fully developed. You'll be perfect and complete. Not, with, not without a need for Christ, but fully connected with Christ. And you won't need anything. And it motivates you. And encourage you. And you could lean on Josh's faith while you keep running this race. But at some point, you're going to be done. Because the race was already supposed to be over. And following Jesus was supposed to be easier. And the opposition was supposed to stop fighting so hard at some point. And maybe you're walking. And Michael, your pastor, would show up and walk with you. And he wouldn't come to tell you stats about collective and he wouldn't come to share his philosophy on how the Redskins are going to get better next year. He wouldn't talk about something maybe you both care about. He'd remind you of the verses he's held on to. 
in the midst of his pain and his struggle, in the moments where he was ready to give up. And he'd teach you John 16, 33. He said, hey, Jesus actually warned us about this. Jesus told us, here on earth, we'll have trouble. We'll have trials and sorrows, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. See, the, reala the reality collective is that you might be struggling, but you don't fight alone. And if you don't know those stories I just shared, you have a year's worth of podcasts to go catch up on. And you can donate food and make a difference in this city, but you must do it with sharing your story. Because there are people who need to hear stories of pain and stories of a better God who redeems that pain. But if you are a person who is struggling and going, Ryan, I don't know how to go on today. Know that you're in a collective of people who are struggling alongside you and are here to encourage you. You are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to this life of faith. You can keep going. Let me pray. God, I, um, I thank you for collective, not just the name of a church, but for a collective of people who know what it is to struggle, who know what it is to be hurt, who know what it is to be in pain, and also know what it is to not give up. Because they're connected with the God of the universe, who's able to redeem it all. So God, would you be with us? There's so many of us in the room right now who are ready to give up. We're perplexed, and we don't want to be in despair. God, we feel hunted. Uh, we really need you not to abandon us. We're pressed, and we don't want to be crushed. God, there are some of us in the room that life has knocked down, and we're asking that you would not let us be destroyed. So God, would you do what you did for Paul? Would you do what you did all throughout Scripture, and would you do it in our lives this week? It's in your name we pray. Amen.